Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, I'd like to begin by first thanking two more Amazon reviewers of my Kindle format novel, The Genesis Generation, and who go by the handles Psychonautic A and Skittens. And additionally, uh, I must admit to being greatly remiss by not thanking all of our fellow saloners who have taken their time to write a customer review of this uh, podcast at the iTunes store. To be honest, uh, I'd kind of forgotten about that uh, since I don't go to the iTunes store very often. So the last time that I checked, uh, uh, I guess it must have been a couple of years ago, the number of reviewers had uh, jumped from 15 to uh, 30-something in its first few years on iTunes. But just now I thought that uh, maybe I'd better take another look at it since I've been going out of my way to thank the recent Amazon reviewers of my books. Well, <laughs> I was shocked to discover that there are now 143 customer ratings uh, with an average of five stars. Uh, gosh, how do I say thank you to uh, such, uh, to me, is uh, an overwhelming response to these podcasts. So uh, I'm now getting today's program out a bit late since I took the time to read them all. And uh, that, my dear friends, is uh, all the encouragement that I need to keep these podcasts coming your way. Uh, you've made an old man, uh, but old in years only, and who still feels 15 inside. <laughs> and recently one of my grandchildren told me that I act like I'm only five. So uh, nonetheless, uh, no matter my inside or outside age, you have all made me a very happy man. Now, uh, as you'll hear in just a few moments, what I've been thinking of and uh, mentioning as a small little talk with just a few people present may have been way off track because uh, in just a few minutes you're going to hear Dr. Timothy Leary say something to the effect that the conference they are attending has some 200 or so people present. But it, uh, it still sounds to me as if he's in a small room with only a few people there. So maybe this was a little spin-off from a larger conference. Uh, of course, the actual setting doesn't matter as much as uh, what he has to say. And so now we'll rejoin the good doctor and his German friends way back in 1983. Which, if you keep up with the lore of Terence McKenna, you will recognize is a very important year in the history of what we now call the psychedelic resurgence. I'll tell you another story. This is a very dangerous story. It's about an animal. Let's say it's a dog. The dog's name is, uh, well, I don't know. Call him Dog. Mr. Dog. He's a very happy dog. He lives in the house. He has a good master. And every morning, they, 10 o'clock, they bring the food. And, uh, He lives and there are no animals around. So uh, the dog lives a very good life. He wakes up in the morning, he goes out and goes around, comes back, and the dog has three fleas one here, one here, one there. And then he goes and he has his uh, dinner. And then he goes, he lies down in the sun, <coughs> he goes to sleep, and then he wakes up. He, Scratches one flea. This is one happy and successful dog. <laughs> no problem. Except one day he wakes up and he runs around and gets <laughs> Five miles away, there is a female dog, Fräulein <laughs> dog. Who is in wants, who needs some spermatozoa? This sends out a signal of scent from the pheromones. Goes for five miles like a big red neon 
electric signal that comes to the dog. Fine. Suddenly, the dog is a consumer of a product that he didn't know he needed or wanted five minutes before. Now, he runs five miles. He gets there. There are other dogs, man, <laughs> <laughs> who study Charles Darwin. <laughs> I think this conference uh, in Sarawan is a wonderful conference. And I've thought a great deal about the people who have come here. And uh, everyone at this conference is a good person. It's um, a, uh, a friendly person and a person who wants to uh, grow. And, uh, a lot of uh, energy comes from a conference like this because everyone at this conference will go home and uh, will be sending out signals. Uh, <coughs> different signals because you're different uh, people and you've got different stages of evolution, different kinds of intelligence at the conference. Very interesting to see the effects of what happens from 200 people coming, like us, coming together. And I'll go back to America now. I'll talk about Germany and uh, the way information uh, moves out that way. I talked about seven kinds of intelligence. The first intelligence is biological intelligence. That's to stay healthy and to avoid pain. The second is emotional intelligence, how to, how to interact as a social person in an intelligent way with others so that you don't uh, uh, make them angry or allow them to crush you. Or Emotional intelligence is a very early form of intelligence. Emotional intelligence, fear, power, jealousy, are mammalian stages of intelligence. So you have biological intelligence. Biological intelligence, you have to get the right food to keep healthy. Emotional intelligence, you have to know how to go through the human human jungle without uh, banging people. I was in prison uh, once for 42 months. And it's very interesting to be in a prison because in a prison you can't escape. You can't get out either from the guards or from other prisoners. <coughs> so in a prison if you make an emotional mistake you can't go away uh, because the next day, if you hurt another convict's feelings, in, in, the, in ordinary life, we meet, we go to the office and hello, or something like that, or no, I'm sorry, too busy, call tomorrow. Uh, you can, uh, uh, emotional interactions, are, you can stay away from people you don't like, so that this person is like that, you won't go to that restaurant. Around. In a prison, you have to really face the mirror of uh, your emotional uh, actions. So I can remember, I wake up in the morning and I get out of my cell. This is a big prison with a half mile big hallway. I walk down the hallway and I would meet a hundred prisoners and I would have to know that one is from the group that doesn't like myself, so I go, but this one is very important, and I say, hey man, how you doing? Good. This is it. Hello? Hello? This one? No, because you had to know uh, exactly how to interact with each prisoner, or it could cause a chain, or a chain, or a chain of events that cause uh, trouble. The third uh, stage of intelligence 
that we talked about is the verbal communication, mental, making of tools. And the individual, <coughs> this comes between the ages of two and three and nine. Then at the fourth level of age of intelligence was the social. And the fifth was the aesthetic erotic. And the sixth was programming your brain. And the seventh was genetic. And today we're going to talk about the eighth kind of intelligence. A book. A book. One book was like CBS television. It would take 30 writers in a monastery 30 months to make one book. And the book was owned, <coughs> the book was owned by the king or by the pope. And one book was worth a, like owning a television franchise in uh, Brion, right? Then Gutenberg invented the printing press so that they could make 100 books a day. It's uh, 700 books a week, uh, 3,000 books a month. So pretty soon, everyone had a book, and hands on, you could, you could open up your own book. Whereas before, you could never touch the big book because it was so valuable. You had to put a rope around it, and the uh, the priest would read, or in some cases in the church, the big book would be here, and I would read from it. You'd be down there. Oh, that's right. It was a pretty place. Everybody gets the book, and with it now, you can take a pencil and you can change the book. So the idea of Gutenberg is the idea of hands-on. And that caused the Protestant Reformation, um, the idea that every person could pray to God, start capitalism, start all those things. So that uh, at the sixth level of brain computer, <coughs> hands-on is the idea that you program your own brain. And then in genetics, in genetic intelligence, you can program your own genetic evolution. Now that's a very powerful concept. If you can change, or if I can change my DNA, there will come a time when cloning will be very intelligent, me. Now, I don't think it's a good time to clone. <laughs> well, I think it would be funny to have a hundred Timothy Larrys. <laughs> and every night at uh, midnight in Greenwich time, for 10 minutes, but I'll get on the telephone and say, well, what did you do today? Well, well, I went to this tower line. Whatever. Tell me, tell me. Oh, yeah, that's good. What did you do? Oh, yeah, you were in uh, Toronto, Reagan? <laughs> well, how'd the, how'd the movie do the first weekend? Gross 20 million. Not bad. All the Timothy Larrys are very busy. <laughs> and some don't even come to the phone because that makes such a good time. <laughs> but now is not a good time to clone because uh, we're on one planet. Well, one planet is like one little nest. Or this planet is a small little planet. It's only 25,000 miles around. It's mainly water anyway. <laughs> so this is a smaller planet. This planet is too small to have 
100 Timothy Leary's running around. <laughs> so we wait. But, um, in 100 years, we have been um, living in space for 200 years, and we'll have made many space uh, homes. And well, um, it would be nice to visit some other stars, because there are other stars, other planets. Um, they speak English and German, <laughs> I hope. It would be nice to, to visit other stars. But the problem is, to go from one star to another takes thousands of years. So that um, for us to get there in our bodies, we would have to do two things. You'd have to, uh, like in 2001, uh, incubate or hibernate. Or another thing, we could just take, <coughs> make a little package, uh, and have in that package all of the biological, organic, pre-living pre chemicals we take them yourself, and we make a hundred of you, put one of you in each of these packages, and send them out to a hundred, along. oh, you can go too. Where are they? we all go together. <laughs> we'll make up a little package called the Sauerland. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'd all be there. Two, three thousand years. <coughs> Package would land on the planet and the box would open up and chemicals be there and the sun one morning the sun would come out, <laughs> they would hit the little package. We'd all wake up. Well, here we are again. <laughs> planet Earth is a thousand years away. And O'Connor comes and says, Rudolph Steiner Smith. Maybe. Uh, right? <laughs> and we, we talk about Steiner. It's possible. It's possible. <laughs> if it's possible, then it's probable that maybe we can do it. Anyway, that's genetic intelligence. The, uh, the eighth level of intelligence um, is called... Uh, out of the body experience. Well, by the way, I should tell you that at every level of these eight stages of intelligence, you have to turn your brain on to the um, circuits that are used at that level of intelligence. And then there are ways to change the human brain to different stages. Things that change your brain are called drugs. Now, if you want to turn your brain to the programs that have to do with health, and at every level, to use your brain, you have to have hardware. For example, when you uh, when your brain turns on to talking, you have to have the hardware of throat, lungs to send the air up. That means that you have to, you cannot open up your third circuit when you're still underwater because then you wouldn't be able to uh, talk underwater or to write. So there are, every stage of intelligence, there is a drug that can help you to access and go back to this level, and there's hardware that you need. Uh, suppose someone, the first level is biological intelligence. Suppose someone 
has an accident outside the hotel, he fell car, lying on the ground, and uh, they're in great pain and uh, having trouble breathing. So <clears throat> we might do, and the more pain, the more motion, and the harder to breathe. So a doctor might come and say, well, we will take away the pain by giving the patient a drug, usually an opiate. Oh, I feel much better. My arm is broken, but uh, it's all right. Opium is wonderful. I don't feel the pain. I lost my job. <laughs> my suit's ruined from the accident. My wife or husband ran away. That's all right. I don't feel any pain. And then the doctor comes and puts the oxygen and breathing. Makes you recover. So the drug covers the brain that there's no pain, and the oxygen or the bandages are the hardware that are needed. So at every level of intelligence, there's a drug that can put your brain to that level, and there's <coughs> hardware around. Now, an intelligent person knows how to program the brain. An intelligent person would never use a drug or use the hardware in a situation where it isn't perfectly right for that situation. <coughs> for example, if we were to give someone here, anyone, <coughs> a strong dose of heroin, who should we do it to? Got it. We gave him a strong dose of heroin. <laughs> Two minutes later, he's just smiling. <laughs> but he wouldn't hear a word I was saying. So maybe that was good, I don't know, maybe not. So for the eight big stages of intelligence, there's a drug that can get you to that stage. Now, be very careful because be very careful. Because what I'm going to teach you now is how to move your brain around using drugs. What is a drug? A drug is a chemical that goes into the uh, receptor site in the brain to open up the circuit of your brain. A drug is an access code. <coughs> so you should be very careful when you use a drug because you're opening up with If you're feeling pain, the drug to make your body feel good is the opiate. Now the opiate is very dangerous because it tells your brain everything good, everything's fine. But at the hardware level, you're nodding out and you don't know whether it is or not. So that the um, Opiates should be used only when you know what's causing the pain and you have done something about the pain so the pain is no longer a signal and then you want the pain to go away. You know, if you have a toothache, oh, oh, oh. the thing is to do not is to take heroin because you take heroin, you know, so if you wake up and you got toothache, but you got to make here, so then you're running around. You take more heroin, and then you've got, still got the toothache, but now you want this other. The thing to do if you have a toothache is go to the dentist. Go to the dentist and have the dentist take out the tooth. Oh, he takes out the tooth. Food. Cut. Food. Wonder. Oh, that. No, it hurts. Doctor? It hurts. Okay. For 
Orchids, okay? Only four. Take it off it. Go to sleep. You wake up this morning, and the pain is gone. Tooth is all right. That's how to use an opiate. Um, now, for the emotional st stage of evolution, the drug that brings out emotions, the drug the little person doesn't like his boss, takes this drug, tells the boss. The drug that makes people very emotional, of course, is alcohol. And uh, you had uh, a measure of the emotion, adrenaline. I did a measure of adrenaline in everybody. And we walked out and went around the hotel, down to the bar, <laughs> it's 11 o'clock. There's more adrenaline going than <laughs> in the next 24 hours. The drug you make uh, for the mental intelligence level, so you can deal with symbols faster, are energizers. See that? Just put some coffee and I'm talking faster. <coughs> Mental intelligence, spinning out those words faster, energizing <laughs> The trouble with an energizer, energizers are wonderful because they do give you energy and they do allow you to say faster and put it all in. The problem is that energizers don't make your words any better. It's more words. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> and, uh, sometimes we have a party. We have a party in Los Angeles, and we'll invite some friends over, and um, they use cocaine. Use cocaine at midnight. Now. To use cocaine at midnight guarantees that <coughs> at five in the morning you're going to be wide awake. <laughs> talking like this. So, I go to bed and I wake up, sleep eight hours, wake up, and there are the, my cocaine friends that are still talking. <laughs> <laughs> what do they say? No importa. <laughs> so, the, the drug for normal social life is, of course, the tranquilizer. <laughs> now, the eighth circuit of the brain is very interesting. And it's very interesting because in honor of Dr. Kubler-Ross, we call the eighth circuit of the brain the death circuit. Because Dr. Ross, Cooper Ross, has written, said, talked, many scientists have said that the moment of death or of traumatic accident, when the person may think she or he's dying, there are moments of revelation. I saw my whole life. It's been well known. Dr. Kubler Ross has written a lot about it. It's called the dying experience. And the dying experience, um, well, it's very logical from the standpoint of the computer. When the heart stops beating, bump, bump, that's the end. The brain, good morning. <laughs> we have uh, taught how to walk and how to uh, use your emotions intelligently so that you don't, uh, and how to communicate intelligently, and how to uh, arrange your environment so that everything's beautiful and erotic and hedonic and 
make love intelligently, use DNA intelligently. Now we're going to die intelligently. <clears throat> I'm saying that when the heart stops, this will be fun for us. I love talking, then you, you give me a grade. <laughs> I'm a little nervous. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, that was some fun, huh? <laughs> I may die of embarrassment right here in front of you. <laughs> but I'll die happy. <laughs> when the heart's, uh, heart stops the last time, boom. The brain knows what's going on in every part of the body. So, when the heart squeezes out its last uh, few messages, the feet and the extremities forget them, and everything starts to close down from the outer. And there goes the knee. And, uh oh, we just lost the uh, we lost the left thing. Save the genitals. <laughs> uh, forget the stomach. Yeah. All right, let the sphincter muscle go. That's all right. We'll clean it up in the morning or else they will. The brain, the brain keeps the last oxygen, the last blood sugar. The brain is so programmed that the official cause of death is brain death, and your body can die, and if your brain is alive, they can bring your body back. You all know that very well. So, from the time that the message goes from the body, it's all over. The brain, which has between 10 and 40 billion computers, uh, they're still functioning. And they're functioning also. The lines are down to the... We don't care anymore about the breathing or about the stomach. Uh, the brain is free to just uh, communicate with itself. <coughs> now, we're talking about a network of between 10 and 40 billion computers that are all... Uh, can communicate with each other with no problems about oxygen or about uh, reproduction or about illumination because the body's gone. So that um, I, I've always thought logically, neurologically, uh, time after the last heartbeat stops for two or three or four minutes, the brain is still going. It's timeless that uh, you can obviously process more information during that period than you could if you're down here. So that uh, if uh, it's absolutely right, I and mean, you're a genius to teach uh, humanity this. If you understand how to die, then you understand how to live. And now, now, there is, the, you know John Lilly in his research with Kevin, well, when you take ketamine, ketamine is called an ideal anesthetic because it turns off all the signals to the brain. But it leaves the body working perfectly. So it's like parking your car and you get out of your body. And there's no fear because you know that the body's working fine. But you've left the body. And they have people usually say I've died. It's like a death experience. But that's alright because your emotions are turned off. So even if you wanted to be upset about the fact <coughs> that you left your body, you can't be upset because the upset <coughs> dial is adrenaline, right? Down there. You have to get all the way down to the body and turn on adrenaline, and adrenaline would come out, and adrenaline would go along the bloodstream to the uh, pancreas and then down to the uh, <coughs> liver and up to the heart to make the heart beat faster. But that can't happen because you're cut off from the body so that there's a, 
You can't be emotional. You can't be uh, afraid because... So, the Kenan experience is very much like the dying experience. It is a hands-on dying experience. It means that uh, John Lilly says he, that he dies every time he takes ketamine. And then two hours later he comes back. Now, remember that the concept of the evolution of intelligence is the concept of hands-on. So that hands-on genetic intelligence, we can change DNA and we don't have to be victims of <coughs> the irreversible genetic process. We can inoculate ourselves so that uh, the cells in our body make DNA changes so that they can deal with diseases like smallpox. We can, uh, we have sex change operation. We talked about that the other day. So now if someone is a boy and wants to be a girl, they, they can ch change the external genitalia, they can change the hormones, they can re-imprint their brain so that they <coughs> look like a girl, he thinks like a girl, he walks like a girl, he talks like a girl, he says he's a girl, well, <coughs> okay, uh, <laughs> that is genetic intelligence, when a human being can change the most genetic of all uh, characteristics. So that's genetic hands-on. Body intelligence is hands-on, whereas that your body is not an instrument for the company. Your body is an incredible <coughs> possibility for beauty, pleasure. It would be possible to have a clinic for Dr. Lilly, where Dr. Lilly could <coughs> train people in the art of dying. There's one problem with ketamine. There's a problem with every technology. The problem with opium is that it makes you feel good, but it doesn't do good. The problem with uh, the tranquilizers is they outside and they make you feel all right, but still things don't change. The problem with the problem with hedonic erotic drug is that if you take it in a situation where you're supposed to be working, it's very unpleasant. <coughs> but the problem with ketamine is have you talked have you talked to John Lilly recently? Have you read it? Not recently. The problem with John Lilly is he's taken ketamine a lot. And he says, ketamine is not addictive. You don't, uh, physically. So the problem is that the dying experience is so interesting that after four hours, you don't want to come back to life. Now that is, is that a terrible addiction that, uh, the, of course, he, he's not addicted, but he has discussed this at times. Like, if you come to John Lilly's home, or if he comes to your home, and there's a party, and people are drinking wine, smoking cigarettes, talking about psychology. <laughs> John Lilly has said, well, I'd rather go upstairs and die. <laughs> I'd rather die than go to that party. <laughs> Upstairs. <laughs> Not only a... It's very funny. Highest level of wisdom is that it's, uh, the uh, learning how to die intelligently why bother about 
No, uh, psychology and conferences, and World War Three, discover the wheel, discover real estate, discover the computer. If you know, if you know how to die gracefully and elegantly and intelligently, why bother with all the foreplay? <laughs> so, Think when you're talking about the tranquilizers at the social stage. Yes. And uh, I was really uh, interested in the drug progression. Yeah, okay. Uh, opiates, alcohol, energizers, tranquilizers, uh, pleasure drugs. Well, cannabis is the basic pleasure drug. Uh, for uh, brain computer intelligence, LSD. Uh, I believe that uh, the drug like LSD, really you have to be, you have to live in the computer age to know something about um, how to use the brain exactly with LSD. And in the past, when people would use drugs like LSD, they uh, would use the language of the past, in the language three or four hundred years ago, uh, well, the language of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. The Tibetan Book of the Dead is 49 days or 49 stages of time, and they're all the hallucinations and the uh, visions and the ecstasies that, um, that the brain can produce. But the Tibetan Book of the Dead was written about uh, over 2,000 years ago, so that they couldn't talk about um, uh, nuclear energy or about DNA. So the, there were devils and demons and uh, people with wings and, and good saints and bodhisattvas and Dhyani uh, Bhagavad and all that. Don't trust anyone born before 1946. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, when I'm with kids, I say, don't trust anyone born before 1965. <laughs> I won't say that here. <laughs> people get very upset. And, uh, you can't get the generations against each other that way after all, you know. We have enough trouble here stirring around you know, generations worse. And I say, well, we'll make a deal. Uh, we say, uh, don't trust anyone that hasn't changed their minds since 1946. <laughs> <laughs> but it's up to you to prove it, you know. <laughs> Let me say your mind here. <laughs> um, this is a concept called temporal geography. That is, the generation you belong to is in as many ways as important as the spatial geography. Because when I said when I walked yesterday and I saw the two generations of Germans, the young Germans, live in a space which is different from the older uh, Germans. So that's temporal geography. They inhabit the same uh, zip code, not for long of it. But, uh, um, uh, so that uh, the clever thing to do is um, every generation, every generation up until now has been a ship like a Titanic. It's doomed to go down. And uh, gradually, people born before 1946, there are fewer and fewer of them. Recently, there'll be fewer of them. They'll be Reagan in a wheelchair, just in turn, like, get the bomb, you know, get the wheelchair over here. <laughs> they'll be 90 years old, and they'll still be fighting Russia, or whatever like that. But, uh, uh, they're, they're not going to stay around. <laughs> Your generation is a sinking ship. So, the intelligent thing to do is to jump ship. <laughs> my generation, I mean, my people, my age, are causing all the trouble in the world today. And I have jumped their ship. I've gone, jumped over to the 60s generation. Now, I didn't do that. I said to them, come. And I went to all my friends and I said, come on, you know, I said, come on. Don't go down with the ship, you know, come on, let, 
They love the shit. They've been trained to go down. Matter of fact, it's supposed to go down. <laughs> They'll argue that you have to have death in earth for life, blah, blah, blah. They're going to go to heaven anyway, so. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, the trick is, particularly now, every generation has its new uh, language, its new way of thinking, its new music, its new style. And uh, you can. Uh, you can continue to jump from generation to generation. There's no reason to feel that you're trapped even by, you can move your, see, 3,000 years ago, uh, they developed the theory of reincarnation because the, there was no place to go. If you were living in the Ganges, you know, Calcutta, you know, would think, uh, where could you go? You know, uh, uh, take like three months to hike to, there's nothing there anyway, and you probably get killed. And, uh, so, since there was no place to go, you were stuck and trapped there, then they invented reincarnation, which was a clever thing, you know. So, you'll come back the next time and you'll get to the Delhi. I had a wonderful uh, teacher in the house in the Himalayas. His name was uh, Sri Krishna Prem, and uh, he. Uh, he said, ah, you want to see the secret of the universe? I said, yes. <laughs> he took me in his study, and he pulled out a map of the world. And I said, what's that? And he said, um, what do you think the Buddha would have said if he had seen that <laughs> and known that you could fly from here to here in like six hours or eight hours? You know, that, but the same thing is true of time, that you can jump time. Uh, and... Uh, it is also true that I, I'm, I don't want to be making fun of older people because, and this is an absolute navigational fact, you can only go as far into the future as you understand and really respect and love the past. Because our function, I think, as evolutionary agents is to bring everything and everyone from the past with us. And uh, the, uh, uh, I have inside my body several trillion, I'm no, not posting. I have several hundred million sperm, and I have several trillion different forms of bacteria, and when I, if I leave and go to, to a spaceship or you know, to, to another, I'm bringing with me, I'm transporting, I'm like Noah. <laughs> you know, I'm, like, I'm like Noah's Ark. Uh, so that we are, uh, the greatest favor we can do as individuals to our species or to life itself is to evolve and become smarter and to migrate and go farther because uh, we're going to bring everything with us. And I think that uh, the people that do evolve into the future, both in space and in time, are probably selected by their gene pool. We're, we're experiments from our gene pools. And as we look around this room, there are many different gene pools. and. Uh, uh, DNA always works that way with, you know, probabilities, and they throw some ahead. You know, all of us in this room, the very fact that we're here studying self and self-development and so forth means that we are an advanced part of our, of, our, um, of our gene pool. We're probes, we're scouts, and we have to give up certain things in order to do that. Uh, we don't have the solidity that... Uh, and it is more complicated, and you make a fool of yourself, and uh, you know, uh, it's a very valuable role. Now, why don't we take a break now, and then... Uh, migration, and uh, neurogeography. Where you are determines who you are. And it's almost a law in evolution that migration leads to mutation and migration leads to uh, to an expansion or increase in intelligence so that uh, if you want to increase your intelligence you should uh, put a lot of mileage on your uh, neurological equipment because uh, every time you change and live in a different place you're doing an incredible number of things. Number one, you're picking up the local bacteria, which is wonderful. Uh, you're also picking up, uh, of course, the uh, 
new ways of adjusting, new languages, new, uh, simply, you're, you're adding, you're increasing your intelligence. A butterfly from uh, Canada will fly 5,000 miles, a butterfly, to one tree in Guatemala or Central America. And there's a incredible intelligence of migration. Uh, the best way to evolve is to migrate to those places where there are people who specialize in the kind of intelligence that you want to, uh, to master. And uh, it's a very simple rule where we say now that the two most important numbers about any human being is the, is the year you were born and your zip code. That's the key to humanity. We must now look to the future. In the past, there was no future. The very idea of a future is very new. You couldn't talk future to the Ayatollah Khomeini. You could not talk future to uh, the Inquisition that burned Bruno at the stake. The very idea, the very word future, is a revolutionary word, like evolution and intelligence. Alright, number one time. Drugs. I shall not talk about drugs in Germany. <laughs> Except. <laughs> there are many new drugs. Neurology is teaching us how the brain works. The brain has receptor sites for different drugs. There's a morphine receptor site. There's a Hoffman LaRoche receptor site. There's a Sandoz receptor site. They are discovering that there are hundreds of receptor sites for drugs that we are now discovering. So the use of drugs by human beings, marijuana, Nesta, LSD, Alcohol. It's just beginning. Every month in America and in Switzerland and in Germany too, I think, there are new drugs that uh, make people smarter, remember better, feel better, sense better, make love better. So there are many, many, many new drugs. Also, in America, there are many scientists working on life extension. I talk to these men. I read their manuscripts. They say within two to ten years there will be a pill, an inoculation, that will double the human lifespan. No! <laughs> no, says the old. You, you, they ask American people, do you want to live 200 years more? No, my marriage will not stand it. <laughs> You want to live 200 years more? No, I'm bored now with television. <laughs> if you're going to live a long time, you have to know how to become smarter. If you know how to program your brain, boom, 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 you, you can learn, change, grow, but you need more time. You need more time. We're going to go into space, space migration. We're going to, in, in, uh, in 10 to 20 years, we could build all this out in space, cheaper than we do it down here, <laughs> and better food. <laughs> we are not little bugs crawling along, how do you say barnacles? A ship, you know a ship of barnacles? <laughs> We are not little bugs holding on to this planet. Now, we have the intelligence, the intelligence to get the escape velocity to leave. So we're going to leave the planet. There are many places to go. There are many people out there right now having conferences and other 
planets thinking about coming to see us. The universe is filled with intelligence. The universe is an enormous field of energy intelligence. And uh, we're learning how to measure this. The key to evolution is the individual, the intelligent individual, the self, finding the self within. As uh, Fritz Kroger said in the, the Frankfurter Ring, the forgotten divinity within. The key is within. The intelligence is within. It is our job as humanists to tell our friends inside, inside the brain, inside DNA, is the key for human evolution. Thank you. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. The key is within, so says the good Dr. Leary, and uh, I happen to agree with him. Uh, however, he also said, don't trust anyone born before 1946. <laughs> good advice. And by the way, I was born in 1942, and uh, so I hope that you aren't uh, putting any stock in what I say. The fact is that I've, uh, well, I've changed my mind. In fact, I've changed my entire worldview uh, several times in my life. You know, if you knew me back uh, 40 years ago and we just now got back together, uh, you'd be shocked at how much I've changed. So the possibility exists that even a decade from now, uh, assuming I'm still alive and kicking, <laughs> well, I, I might yet change once again. In fact, uh, I'm thinking about jumping the old generational ship yet again and joining that wonderful generation born just uh, after 1998 or so. And uh, in case you didn't guess, my oldest grandchild was born in 1999, and uh, so I want to be sure to include all five of them in the next generation that I join. Anyhow, uh, I hope you don't uh, think that my ideas are anything more than stepping stones to your own conclusions about what this world and this life is all about. About the only thing uh, that I've come up with, uh, about which my opinion has never changed, is that this life is really strange, <laughs> but ever so interesting. And uh, speaking of interesting... My dear friend Diana Slattery, and uh, an early benefactor of the salon, to which uh, she donated a huge cache of Terence McKenna tapes, and uh, which I think now make up probably the largest portion of uh, Terence's talks that I've podcast so far. Well, uh, anyway, Diana has another interesting project that just kicked off, and uh, here's part of the announcement that she sent out the other day. The Institute for the Encouragement of Outrageous Ideas is delighted to announce the launch of the Psychedelics and Language website. Created by Dr. Diana Slattery of the Department of Xenolinguistics, the website provides extensive information about the bizarre linguistic phenomena, alien scripts, morphing symbolic systems, glyphs of living language crawling on every surface of a multidimensional world, encountered in altered states of consciousness. These new forms of language, glimpsed in the psychedelic sphere, and the equally novel ideas about language they suggest, point to the co-evolution of language and consciousness, catalyzed by psychedelic medicines. Now, uh, if that doesn't get your attention, I don't know what will. And if you know Diana, you recognize the fact that this is a very wise and experienced professional woman and that these ideas, these outrageous ideas that many of us have had from time to time, can actually be studied, professionally studied. And uh, this is no small matter, and I hope that you'll follow the link to Diana's new website that you'll find in the program notes for this podcast, and uh, which, as you already know, you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. Now, uh, about next week, my plan is to play the next part of that Terrence McKenna workshop that he led on Maui in 1994, and uh, which hasn't before found its way to the net. Uh, however, I've run into a little snag and uh, may have to skip that for a couple of weeks. But if I don't get that particular McKenna talk out then, 
The program will feature the highlights of that first morning of the recent Esalen workshop that Bruce Damer and I led. And that segment is titled, A Deep Dive into the Mind of Terrence McKenna. So, uh, one way or another, our next guest here in the salon will be the spirit of the Bard McKenna. Until then, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.